0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Most of Boston's public school students have been attending school remotely, from their bedroom at home or on their laptop computer in the local coffee shop. Yet most of Boston's Catholic school students are attending school in person nearly every day of the year. Why did the COVID pandemic necessitate a closure of Boston public schools when no such action was necessary at the private ones? Did the private schools place students and teachers at grave risk? Or were the public schools unreasonably cautious? Or are there other differences that could explain the different choices that are being made? To discuss this and other topics related to Catholic education, I am pleased to have with me Thomas Carroll, Superintendent of the Schools for the Boston Archdiocese. Thank you, Tom, for joining me on the Education
1: Exchange. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to join you.
0: Well, Tom, can you let, let's not get into the pandemic immediately. Let me just get some context. How many students attend Catholic schools in Boston, and 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 how many schools are there? How how big a system is this that you are responsible for?
1: So we are the geographically we're the largest district in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in terms of number of students. We're the second largest after the city of Boston. We have 31,500 students. We also have uh, roughly 4,200 faculty and staff, and everyone spread across 100 individual Catholic schools. And the Archdiocese geographic footprint runs from Plymouth, Massachusetts in the south, as in the Mayflower, all the way up to the New Hampshire border, and west of Boston, almost to Worcester, Massachusetts.
0: So you're almost exactly what people say uh, the public school system should be. It should be coincident with the metropolitan area. And that's just about where you are.
1: Pretty much. That's true. Uh, and we've and the, the other thing is we have a great diversity of schools. So we have STEM schools. We have the the only uh, all male Catholic boys choir school in the country. Uh, we're opening a blended learning academy in the fall. Uh, which is unique as well. And so there's, and we have a mix of co-ed schools and uh, single gender schools. And we also have schools that are serving children uh, in great economic poverty. At the same time, we have affluent schools and schools serving middle-class and working-class populations.
0: Well, historically speaking, Catholic schools were concentrated in the core city of Boston. Uh, That's undoubtedly changed as everybody's migrated uh, to the fringes of the metropolitan area, but what percentage of all the students in Boston are attending Catholic schools, would you estimate?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a number somewhere uh, probably around 10%. Uh, so we have also, people think in the Boston Archdiocese, Boston is the only city, uh, but we have dozens of cities. where actually in Massachusetts, the school district lines are the same as lines for a town or a city. And so there's more than 150 different towns and cities within the Boston Archdiocese that adds a complexity to it as well. But you have uh, other kind of really hardcore urban areas. Uh, Brockton uh, is within the Archdiocese, so is Lawrence, so is Lowell, so is Lynn, uh, Revere, Chelsea, uh, areas that have faced some pretty uh, serious economic challenges over the years.
0: Well, I know that when the year was beginning, or before we really knew what the impact of the pandemic was going to be, it seemed as if the uh, number of students attending Catholic schools in in Boston, in the Boston area, was going to be declining. I think I saw that report somewhere. Am I correct in thinking that 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 was the forecast? That was the prognostication. And so
1: so Charles Dickens, the the opening line of a tale Two cities was, it's it's the best of times, the worst of times. In our case, it was the reverse. We had the worst of times, which is when the pandemic first hit, followed by the best of times. And by that, I mean, uh, the Catholic church is essentially a three-legged stool, which is the churches, is the first leg, the second leg is the school, and the third leg is kind of our social service uh, network, including Catholic charities and other nonprofits. And because the economic fallout of COVID, all three were uh, knocked out, kind of knocked off their stride in the same day. Uh, So it was a very challenging period from February, March uh, into the early summer for sure. And so we ended up closing nine schools during that time period. Two other Catholic schools that were uh, run by religious orders were closed. Uh, So that was a a substantial uh, number of closures. On top of that, by early July, our predicted enrollment by the fall was down by 5,700 kids. That would have been the largest enrollment decline in the history of the archdiocese. And it would have necessitated us closing if it did not get reversed somewhere in the order of 24 schools on top of the 11 that had already closed. So it would have been catastrophic. And then what happened on July 15th, the three teachers unions made an announcement I never understood why they made the announcement instead of the superintendents who were theoretically in charge of all the districts uh, and indicated that they were gonna open the school three weeks late, almost like a a kid coming up to a teacher knowing that they had a long-term assignment but coming in the day before saying that they needed more time. And then when they opened, they weren't actually gonna open, they were gonna be remote. And so all across the state, the public schools uh, were for the most part remote. There were a few exceptions and over time more came online, but we had it. So when they made that announcement it hit the six o'clock news uh, that evening and literally the phones at a hundred Catholic schools started ringing off the hook because their message that they were not ready and that they had no intention of going back in person Uh, just thudded with a lot of parents who knew that their kids were not getting the education that they really deserved when the pandemic first hit and everybody was at home kind of on short notice. And they wanted desperately their kids to be back in school. And then obviously people who were working also had an economic reason to have their kids back in school. So there are a lot of social and emotional reasons that they wanted kids back in school. Uh, There are educational reasons as well, and then there were also economic reasons. So the parents were really ticked off, to be honest. And so from that point forward uh, to roughly the middle of October, the phones kept ringing. So we gained about 4,400 students, kind of an enrollment surge in response to their decision to go remote. And from a branding perspective, as you will, we became known as the in-person schools and they became known as the schools that were not open. And so a lot of people gravitate, people that never planned on putting their kids in catholic schools now a lot of them are catholic because we're talking about the boston area where it's one of the most catholic areas in the country Uh, but the people that their family financial plan did not contemplate them paying tuition and they just were never looking at a religious school
0: option this is exactly what happened to my family my my son and his and his wife uh, looked at the situation They, they had already gone through the spring closing and they were really just feeling pretty desperate at that point. And they so then they they figured the schools were going to be open in the fall. And then when this announcement made, the first thing they did was to pick up the telephone and do as so many other parents in the in the city and the environs did and say, Do you have any spaces left? And I think they got in quickly because their school is a pretty popular Catholic school. But I think uh because of that. That enrollment decline you were talking about, They there were some spaces available uh, if you move quickly and they move quickly enough to do it. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: So now we have a lot of schools that have waiting lists, which is not something that we've had for a really long time for most schools. And we're now experiencing a second wave of public school parents. So the public schools are still not telegraphing with any degree of clarity that they're definitely opening Uh, or that they're opening across the board. And parents, in many cases, are now looking back at and thinking, and and the thing to remember is all the parents live in the same neighborhoods, whether they go to a private school, a public school, a uh, district school, or a charter school. so they're all talking to each other all the time. And so what they're experiencing is, they know, first of all, that their Catholic friends, Catholic school friends, have been in continuously they know that when we were all closed for a couple of months that we were the first ones to to start, we were closed on a Friday I actually closed all the schools before the mayor of Boston or the governor closed any schools. But on Monday we were already providing instruction, most of the districts took two or three weeks before they could figure out what to do. Now that they were suddenly closed so people had that in the back of their mind a public school parent would visit a friend who is a Catholic school parent and realize that their children were talking to teachers and other kids and their kids weren't talking to anybody so that was the first sense that something was rotten in denmark so to speak and then when you got into the fall a lot of the first movers like your son and his wife and the kids uh they were part of the 4400 that i call an enrollment surge and so now we have this second wave of people who frankly looking back at the learning loss that their kids have experienced over this past year and kind of the social complications of kids not seeing each other not seeing their teachers not seeing their friends as easily uh, frankly think they made a mistake not being in that first wave of defections from the public school into the Catholic school I think the whole thing is an argument for school choice uh, because if we did not exist as an alternative system those parents would have been in a really really tough spot. so I think one of the the blessings of Boston in particular but the whole state is there are a lot of options. And so if people aren't happy, they're not captive, they can go somewhere else. And so I think there's a broader policy implication about the need for having educational pluralism and that as a public goal, we should encourage it because one size clearly in this past year, one size did not fit all and people needed other options and they needed them fast.
0: Consistent with what you're saying there, uh, Education Next, our journal uh, does a poll And last November, we asked parents in private schools and in charter schools and in district operated schools across the United States, whether their child was being taught full-time in-person or whether they were online full-time or whether it was a mix. And in the private sector, it was over half, well over half were full-time in-person. There are still a lot of private schools that weren't Full time, but the the majority of kids were full time, according to their parents. But in the public sector, in the district sector, it was exactly the opposite. Something like uh, 60% were online only as late as last November. And a lot more were in hybrid, and about 20% were actually full time in person. So there was this. And then if you weren't going in person, you were the parents were reporting all these things you mentioned socialization concerns, emotional concerns, academic concerns, even physical fitness. I mean, they there was even this uh, surprisingly a big difference between in person and uh, online instruction in terms of the amount of uh, physical activity that the kids were engaged in. So, yeah, that's very much fits uh, with what you say. So, now, but how, what's the COVID problem? You've had these open schools. Oh, by the way, are they all open all the time, or are they sort of four day a week, three yeah. day a week? How, what's What's your
1: Yeah, all, all the diat our schools are a mix. The hundred schools are a mix. Uh, not all of them are schools directly controlled by the archdiocese, but the archdiocese schools are all open um, all the time. So uh, there are other schools that we don't control that are Catholic schools that have gone hybrid. Uh, no you know we don't have there's not a single high school for example that was ever closed um we've had so we when we started out the the biggest thing that we confronted is what first when the governor announced that he would allow schools to be open and we never asserted a religious argument that if the health department wanted to close us that we would go to the Supreme Court and stop them from closing us so uh but the governor ended up not going there. And we had conversations with the governor and his top staff about we wanted to open. So we never, so when he said, you can go, all we focused on was how do you open safely and how do you handle the technology so that if anybody had to be out of the class because they had a compromised person in their household or because they came in contact with an infected person, how do we make sure that their learning is not disrupted at all? And so we focused on the how The other team, so to speak, focused on do we even want to open? And so their response was well, we need to call a union meeting and have a discussion and go on for weeks, became months and so forth. And uh, but meantime, we were just getting ready to open and doing all the things we had to do. And we were ahead of them on technology and a bunch of different things.
0: What were the things you had to do?
1: Well, the big thing is we were buying uh, like just simple things like cleaning supplies. We were buying the same time that everybody in the entire country was trying to get the same stuff. So we had almost like a D-Day landing logistical side of this, which is we have 100 schools. They're all over the place. We have a lot of people. Right. So that's part one. So we had to make sure we could get supplies and we didn't have any gaps in supplies because if we couldn't ensure that the buildings were clean and that people could wipe their hands and all that, the whole the health protocols would fall apart. And we had to make sure that everybody had masks and so forth. So that was kind of like a supply chain problem, just because if we were just doing it ourselves, it wasn't a problem. But when you're entering the market for that stuff and everybody in the world is trying to get the stuff at the same time, it's it's difficult. So we we took care of that. Similarly, on technology, uh even things like webcams, for example, tripods <laughs> and whatever, they uh video cameras, they sold out all like all the major department stores. Uh, that was all gone kind of early in July. So we had to find a way through Variety Suppliers to get all of that equipment. Then you have to take an institution, remember a religious institution, that's been around for two millennia. And then you have to get it to pivot really fast and to be leading on technology. Well, this is not exactly a technology savvy organization to say the least. So if you had asked me when I took the job, could you train up 4,200 people and the kids and their parents? on how to do technology and you've got three months to do it, I would have laughed hysterically. Uh, But we were able to do that. And we had, when we opened in early September, some schools opened in August, we we were down to like two, three schools that had supply issues. And then we had bought extra supplies. We just literally had a guy running around in his car, um, installing everything. So by the end of the first week, everybody was all set up and we didn't have any broadband issues or anything else. So those were kind of the logistics of it. And then we started getting. I started getting letters, people saying, well, are you gonna to go to the funeral of every single child that you killed by opening all the schools? <laughs> I mean, people, were, people forget now that we're kind of towards the, the other end of this, how nervous people were in that moment. So when suddenly you're saying, okay, between faculty, staff and kids, we're talking over 35,000 people, nobody else is going back to school. We're sending them back to school. So, if there's going to be a super spreader event, it's going to be in our schools because nobody else is in school. And I contested from the very beginning that the safest place in America is in a Catholic school that's following the health protocols. Because at home, nobody's following the health protocols. Nobody's sanitizing their entire house every single day, multiple times a day. Nobody's walking around in a mask in their house. People are, you know, and I can see in my own neighborhood, like kids are rolling around on top of each other, playing touch football and tackling each other and so forth. So the notion, so what happened quickly is we got as cases rose in the broader community, we would get what I call outside in cases, meaning somebody got contaminated in the unregulated non-school part of the community. They would bring it into our school and the test of us, and that was kind of a failure of community to not like keep things under control. But our test is when somebody walked in a case would the protocols work so that that we did not become, we would not spread it within?
0: Did you test students every day?
1: No, we didn't do any of the, uh, you know, where you shoot people in the forehead with a, you know, the thermometer, the forehead scan. But we did a lot of research on it. And eventually, the CDC came around coincidentally to our viewpoint, which that, that that equipment is incredibly unreliable, and there's there's also logistical issues when you're talking about. 35,000 people to do that every single day and get school to start on time. So instead, what we did, we had we backed it up to the parents. They had an obligation to do the screening and then every teacher had the obligation to be obviously scanning the room to see if anybody needed to go to the nurse uh, to have their temperature taken. But we decided early on we wouldn't test everybody. We also decided the governor allowed us to do three to six foot. We decided for most part to go with three foot.
0: You were at three foot before CDC was. So CDC now says three feet's okay, but you you were there right from the beginning. Why did you do that? Yeah, and so the joke
1: of it is, right, Europe, which was, you know, already had their schools open, they were at a meter, right, which is close, not exactly three feet, but close, but it's not six feet, right?
0: So it was 39 obvious. 39 inches. A meter is 39 okay. inches. I thought I was, ta- I was taught you. that somewhere along the line. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if I went to Catholic school, I would have remembered that. But so, so, and it turns out that for 150 years, Catholic schools have had all the desks three feet apart. Um, and and nice neat rows. And the the Catholic advantage in the sense is like we have nice neat rows. Everybody's not nobody's allowed to touch anybody, and everybody has to look forward and pay attention to the teacher. And the teacher's up, you know, at the front of the room kind of thing. And that, that format, if you will, that's been around forever and replicated by a lot of public schools uh, happens to be really good in a pandemic. The other advantage that the Catholics have is no matter what else we do, and I think we do a lot of things well, but the thing we're really known for is getting kids to follow instructions. That's the, like, if you can't do that, get out of Catholic schools. Like you have no business being a Catholic school teacher, a Catholic school leader. So even without the nuns, we get kids to follow instructions. Well, the way to stay safe in a pandemic is to follow instructions from adults on what the health protocols are. Then the other thing that I think helped us is in Massachusetts, unlike many other states and the nation, uh, you had a governor who is a very calm person, one of the most popular governors in the country, but you have a Republican governor in a Democratic state and you have a Democratic mayor, Marty Walsh, the governor's Charlie Baker, and they were very collegial to each other and they were on the same page. And both of them made very unpopular decisions that were the right decisions based on science and health data in the time. And both of them were willing to amend the decisions they made when the data pointed in a different direction. So when Governor Baker realized that we were not, early on, we had no cases of spread whatsoever. We went about two and a half months before we had our first case of somebody catching a case within the school. And so when he realized that, and we were the only test bed for what worked, because the other schools were remote, so you didn't know if the health protocols that the governor came up with actually worked, other than with us. And so we gave all of our data to the state, and the governor was astonished. And we were surprised, too. We didn't think we'd make it this far. It just, it went a lot better. That Health protocols worked a lot better than we ever
0: imagined. If you look at the national data, you see that the incidence of COVID among children is minuscule it's like one in a million and you know the death the death rate is almost zero uh maybe there's some children with more comorbidities that uh have a problem but it's, the death rate is almost zero back the hospitalization rate is minimal uh, so really it, it even, that was evident even in the first couple of months and may have led to your decision to open you must have been looking at that data, and the European data was suggesting the same thing, that kids were not being adversely affected by this particular disease. So our view was
1: not we were going to open no matter what. Our view is we were going to open as long as we could keep everybody safe. If the data turned against us, I would have, I didn't wait for anybody to close the schools initially. We closed them before the public authorities closed anything. So I didn't have a problem reclosing the schools if things spun out of control. But as long as the data was looking good and it looked like the spread was trivial, we were not gonna close. And so we were able to convince the governor and local health officials, because the decisions were actually made by each of the local health boards in each of the towns and cities. They weren't actually made by the state health department the state department came out with the broad protocols, but the actual day-by-day decision makers with the local health boards. And they came to the conclusion that in areas like Lynn, St. Mary's and Atlanta High School, they stayed open the whole time because they convinced the local health people and the local mayor that these kids were much safer in their school, given how seriously they took the protocols. They were never out a single day. They were in five days a week. They were never out a single day for anything other than a snow day. They were never out because of COVID. That doesn't mean there wasn't an individual kid that got sent home or you know, things that were a sports team or a bunch of kids went to a party or something like that. We all kind of rolled through all of those facts and dealt with them in conjunction with uh, the health board. But you never closed any school. I would make a point.
0: There's no school that was ever shut down all year long? No, that that one wasn't. We
1: did have schools that uh, the most common fact pattern was for high schools is there was a high school party, over 100 people show up. This happened multiple times. Nobody obviously had an attendance list for a high school party. And they knew that all the kids didn't have masks at the high school party. So in that case, the head of that school had to decide, I don't know who might've been contaminated and who might not have. So we basically have to quarantine everybody for 10 days or two weeks until we get it all sorted out. That one when the weather got colder and when the students realized that they were basically sticking it to themselves when they were irresponsible, that suddenly they couldn't see their friends for two weeks. Um, the kids got, the teenage kids got more responsible as the year went on. So the question for, you could say that we leaned in early and loudly on in-person. I don't fault the public schools for not being open on the first day, but once the health data became clear and the science became clear that three foot was just as good as six foot, that there is virtually no spread in any of our schools, and that data was well known by October. And then once as individual public schools came back in Massachusetts, their data was very similar to ours. And so, and the governor was repeatedly in press conference in his daily briefing, pointing out that there was no spread. The mayor was trying to get the teachers unions to come back, albeit unsuccessfully. So I think their mistake was not that they were timid in the first couple of weeks, but that they didn't follow the science. They didn't follow the health data. So the irony which I left at is the Catholic church is kind of leading the way on matters of science. But uh, but we were following the data. I was getting reports every single day of every single case, no matter what the circumstances were. And we were prepared to reverse. I was prepared and the Cardinal was if the data went the wrong way. So, but the, the other side, the public schools, like it doesn't make a difference. So once the CDC started accumulating the evidence, once the American Academy of Pediatrics accumulated the evidence, they both already had said what the social costs were of kids being isolated. It was very clear what the right thing was to do and the teachers unions didn't care. And so they said, we're not coming back now. Everyone's vaccinated, I'm vaccinated. So I called up when I waited because I feel the teachers or the frontline people should go first. And so after like everybody, I knew there was a teaching gal and then I said, okay, I called up. It took me five minutes. They answered the phone. I had an appointment three three days later. Um, I got my second shot yesterday. So my point is, it's very easy to get vaccinated now. So there's not a single teacher who wants to be vaccinated that should not be vaccinated right now. So even that, they they first said we can't go back. It's not safe. The vaccine comes out like, well, we can't get the vaccine yet. Then they get the vaccine and they're still not going back in. So. And then they're still not committing across the state that all the public schools are gonna be open. So I, I think there's no logic to that anymore. There's a political logic. The teachers unions can't have one set and this has to do with their compensation has to do with everything they do. Everybody has to be treated exactly the same. So if 10, 20% of the teachers don't wanna go back. Nobody's going
0: back. So now let me ask you about, about what the fall means for Catholic education in the Boston area. You, I think you were on the verge of saying something about that a bit ago. Are, do you see the enrollment increasing this fall, uh, a building on the uh, the turnaround that's already taken place?
1: Yeah, we, the, the honest answer is we don't know because there's so much variability on which school districts are going back and which ones are not. So even though people have indicated, that the public school people who came in last September, that they're coming back and they've made initial payments um, it's still possible that some of them, when they find out if their school district is going to be open that they basically you know uh, end up going back to the public school anyway but the fact that we're getting a bunch of people who not only are admitting that their kids learned virtually nothing last year but they are asking us before we even test the kid they want the kids to be held back for a year because they literally in many cases have said to our school leaders My child learned literally nothing in the past school year. And so they're supposed to be chronologically in ninth grade. We want them to redo eighth next year, and we want them to redo eighth grade next year instead. So it's this lost year. And so, and this is not having an even impact either, because obviously, if you're from an affluent family, you can hire tutors. The parents, you know, there's lots of enrichment programs they can arrange. But if you're from a disadvantaged family, or you're homeless, uh, or you require special ed services, uh, you've had a really devastating year. And those gaps are going to take, public school people privately admit that it's not a question that they think they're suddenly, they often in urban school have trouble doing one year of growth in one cal, one school calendar year. So now for them to catch up, they basically have to do two full years of growth in one year, which is not exactly likely.
0: Well, if you look at studies from around the world, when schools close for a prolonged period of time, you look at earnings of adults many years later, you see they they never do catch up. Their earnings are down. If it's a full year loss of time, their earnings are down about 8 to 10% if they lose half a year they're more like 3 to 5% but it that has a prolonged impact on the economic uh, and well-being and many other sides of life that's just in the quantitative indicator we have so yeah you can't assume that you can make it up that just you know you miss a year that somehow you make it up you just can't assume that
1: so that's that's a you know i think that's why these parents i i am um... I can't imagine what it feels like to be a parent of a child who made the decision not to switch in September to our schools and then found out you know, half year later, two thirds year later that they ultimately are still not opened and they made a huge mistake and they know intuitively that this is not gonna end well for their kids. There's another aspect, every single year, every single school in America has new students. So if you're a school that never opened, this year that means you're on a zoom with a teacher you've never met if you're a new student with kids that you've never physically met nobody's looked at what the impact of that is how do you how do you develop an attachment to any people in your classroom if it's a purely virtual relationship so we always thought when we said we were going to open i I would say like privately well i sure hope we can get a few months out of this like I didn't think we were gonna get the whole year, right? Cause you didn't really know how the the, the uh, virus was gonna play out, how COVID was gonna play out. But our focus as, as a religious institution is we wanted to reestablish the sense of community. We wanted all the new kids to get to meet their teachers and their classmates. And because a large reason for having Catholic schools is to evangelize the faith, is to do the spiritual formation of the kids. That's essentially an in-person activity. It's very hard to do that through a laptop because it requires, and this is not just Catholicism, it's all faith, it requires a personal encounter. And so that personal encounter is gone if you're remote. So on the public school side in Boston, the mayor asked the teachers' unions, can we at least educate kids needing special, ed who have special needs and children who are homeless? Okay, so they agreed for one week they educated 1,300 people out of 50,000 plus who fit in those two categories. At the end of the week, the teachers union canceled it. And the mayor said, I went to the classes. like these kids are stranded if they're not in school. Like if you, how, how is a homeless child gonna do remote? You know, they don't have a home. That's why they're called homeless. So, I mean, it's like, it's mind blowing. And they just said, look, the original deal was if the transmission level hit 4%, we were out of here. Well, it hit four percent this week and we're done. And then the mayor said to them the mayor, now the US labor secretary, he said, Well, what if we just have teachers volunteer, only teachers who want to come in? And like it's not allowed under the contract.
0: So, Tom, you mentioned something that I want to pick up on, and that is you because it, it seems to me it was a faith commitment you had to make last summer in July when you said we're going to go forward, because it could have been disastrous. Things could have broken out in ways that uh, you, you could have really been embarrassed by that decision. So how did you how difficult did you find it to 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 take that that step forward, to really put your body on the line, so to speak, and say, we are going to be open?
1: I was despite sometimes withering criticism from anonymous people on social media and elsewhere. I was compre- completely serene about the decision for two reasons. One, it simply made no sense to me to believe that kids were safer in the broader community than they were in a tightly run school that was sanitized and that was making sure everybody was following the protocols. So I just didn't believe they were safer anywhere else. And secondly, I knew and we we had the archdiocese had demonstrated that the second things turned bad, we were willing to change. So we would not have let it spin out of control for weeks or months or even days. If it turned out that we had kind of reached the outer limit of how far we could push it, then I was prepared to close the school in October or November. So as the the COVID got higher and higher and higher as we got into the fall, we were watching very closely what was happening to spread and so we found that we were able just to turn the kids around who were sick, send them home, and everybody else, for the most part, uh, never had any impact from them temporarily being in the school. And the second that was not true, that there was in our back of our mind that the caseload in the community gets so bad that it would just overwhelm everything. Um, but the protocols, I didn't come up with the protocols. You know, the governors help people and kind of various experts. And the protocols worked. We, we I joke, we, we administer them religiously with kind of a religious zeal. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I have had friends say to me, like, well, since you didn't have, you had virtually no cases, maybe you didn't need to do mass. Maybe you didn't need to obsessively clean the buildings. Maybe you didn't need to wor- worry about spacing. Maybe you could have had everybody in the cafeteria.
0: Yes, I have some friends who say exactly that, that we don't really need all those, those uh,
1: requirements. I have the opposite conclusion. I think we're still standing here in-person because we followed all those rules, not, not because they were irrelevant. And I think if we had not followed the rules, it could have been a completely different ending and a lot of people could have gotten hurt. So we took it seriously. But I think to go back a second for Governor Baker and uh, Mayor Walsh, I think because they were playing it straight with no drama, calling it as they saw it. And everybody saw that none of their decisions were political and they were taking on political water by making some decisions that were unpopular i think people respected that and so i was concerned that when we opened that we couldn't get everybody to buy in and that you'd have some percentage of people are just like we're not going to do this but i think because of the tone set by the governor and the mayor and the mayor's impact, the fact that there are opposite parties and they were working together I think it depoliticized the issue in a way to national level. Like it almost became like if you were, you know, if you were with Trump, you wouldn't wear a mask. If you were with the other team, you, you might wear a mask. Uh, in Massachusetts, you didn't really have that. People just respected the steady leadership we had in this state and the protocols worked. So I'm not sure what they're going to look like going forward, but they certainly for this year in the pandemic, it worked. And the evidence is in the, the health data.
0: Well, let's hope that uh, things will settle down over the summer and that this will be behind us. But I thank you very much, uh, Tom, for sharing your experience on the ground, facing uh, facing the challenges that you have faced over this year. So uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange.
1: Thank you. Appreciate
0: it. I have been speaking with Tom Carroll, Superintendent of Catholic Schools for the Boston Archdiocese. Thank you all for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.